So if you've got your Bibles, um, I invite you to open them up to Isaiah chapter 2. So in Isaiah chapter 1, we spent the last couple of weeks there. In chapter 1, Isaiah lamented over Judah's sin. And he included these vivid and graphic pictures of how dreadfully sinful the people of, of his day were there in the southern kingdom of Judah. That they were a people who had abandoned their God, walked away from their God, done their own thing, and sinned against their God. And so Isaiah was calling out to them to turn back. That their only hope was that they would turn from their sin back to God. So he called on them to repent, but ultimately they did not. And so he told them that judgment was coming because of their sin. Judgment was coming. And that's where chapter 1 ended, in judgment. And as we, as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, look back on chapter 1 and we read it through a gospel lens, we identify with the people of Judah. Not with Isaiah crying out to the people, but to the people themselves we identify with. Because we too are stained with sin. We have the sin in our own flesh. And our only hope, praise God, we can do that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Those who turn from their sin to trust in Christ, though our sins are like scarlet, as Isaiah said in chapter 1, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. But if we do not repent and return to Christ, then judgment is coming, just like it was for Judah. But in that, ju in that judgment that was prophesied in chapter 1, there was, there was a hint of hope. That there, there was a glimmer of hope because there was a foreshadowing of a new city that was coming one day. That, that the unfaithful city of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day would one day be replaced by a faithful city, the city of God, the, the new Jerusalem. But that was just a glimpse in chapter 1, just a, just, a, we call it just a bit of it. But that glimmer of hope in chapter 1 is now what Isaiah turns to in full force here in chapter 2, as he will give us a glorious and more fulfilled out and complete picture of the new Jerusalem that is coming, the city of God. So in chapter 2, there are two contrasting visions that we'll see. And each of those visions is followed up by an exhortation from Isaiah, the chapter 4. Isaiah is going to see first a vision of this new Jerusalem. And it is a glorious picture. It is a beautiful picture of our home church. This is not our home. This is, this is a, a description of our home that he's going to call us to one day. The new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven. And he sees this vision in verses 1 through 4. And that's followed up by an exhortation in verse 5 to walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, because this is what J Jerusalem will be, 
He calls us to live like that today. And then the second vision, which starts in verse 6 and continues through the remainder of the chapter, Isaiah, Isaiah sees another vision. And this is the vision of the prideful arrogance of Judah. A prideful arrogance of the actual Jerusalem. See, verses 1 through 5 is going to be the ideal Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that, that would have been if there weren't sin. The Jerusalem that could have been if man had not rebelled against God. And in verses 6 through the remainder of the chapter is the actual Jerusalem that he sees with his own eyes. He looks down from this lofty picture of the, of the new Jerusalem that will be one day, and he sees the Jerusalem of his day, and it is a picture of the prideful arrogance of man. The people of Judah seeking to find contentment and hope and delight and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and security. And what God is going to do to deal with this one day in this day that he will flesh out for us in this second vision called the day of the Lord. That in the day of the Lord, the pride of man will be brought low and the Lord himself alone will be lifted up. So that's the pattern that this chapter is going to follow. Now, I want to read just through verse 9 and save verses 10 through 21 for later this morning. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures, Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of the Philistines. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask in Jesus' name that you'd speak to us. Lord, give us not just an understanding of what your servant meant when he wrote this centuries ago. But Lord, change our lives by what you are saying through your word to our souls this morning. Pray that your word would be planted deep in our hearts, that you would attend to it with faith, that you would give us the faith to trust you to lean on you, and to find hope in you alone, to trust in you alone, not in ourselves, not in others, not in the things of, that we make with our hands, 
but that we would trust in you alone, that we would find contentment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and security and hope only in you, Lord, for you are our God. Speak to your people this morning. Draw unbelievers to faith in your son, Jesus, through this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, two visions and two exhortations. First, followed by an exhortation to walk in the light of the Lord. The second is a vision of the prideful arrogance of man and what God will do about that on the day of the Lord, followed by an exhortation to stop regarding man. So let's look first at the vision of the new Jerusalem in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 is is a super, uh, superscription, just like we saw in verse 1 of chapter 1. And by the way, those are the only two that we're going to see, at least in that kind of formal structure in the whole book, which reminds us that this prophecy that's given here in chapter 2 is a generic prophecy. It's a summary kind of preparatory uh, prophecy that is going to find thematic elements that are fleshed out throughout the whole book. So that's why it's part of the preface. I believe that this prophecy was given after Isaiah's call to ministry in chapter 6, but he orders it here in the first five chapters as a sort of preface to what he's going to say throughout the remainder of the book. But the vision itself begins in verse 2, and it's an incredible portrait, an, an incredible vision of the new Jerusalem, that he's, he sees this in the latter days. Now, certainly we're a part of the latter days in the here and now, but what he describes here is that, that new city that John talks about in the Revelation, that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem that comes down out of the heavens, and God will be with his people and Jesus himself will rule from that city. It's a glorious picture. Now there's four things that I want us to note uh, from the description that he gives of this new city here, the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. First, he says, it will be the highest of all the mountains. Verse 2 says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, the mountain of the house of the Lord is a reference, is another way of referring to Jerusalem. And we know Jerusalem sits on a hill. But it's not a particularly high hill. This will be the highest mountain on the face of the earth. Now, this might be physical, this might be literal, perhaps it, it is the highest one and all the other mountains are brought low. Or perhaps he's speaking figuratively of, here of, of spiritual importance, spiritual significance, and, and spiritual authority from this hill. Being higher than all of the other mountains and hills means that it will be recognized as the source of all majesty all splendor, all glory, all authority in the universe because the sovereign king rules from there. Often when we sing, we, we uh, sing things like, may the Lord be high and lifted up, right? 
Maybe he, he be exalted above all. Lord, we want to see you high and exalted. Well, that's what this is going to be. Everyone will see in that day that all authority and majesty and glory and honor are due to the one who rules on that mountain in that city because he is God. So much so that, that, that secondly, all the nations will flow to this mountain. That's what Isaiah says in the last part of verse 2. All the nations shall flow to it. Now, if you've ever seen a river on a mountain, it doesn't flow uphill. It flows downhill, right? But, but, but Isaiah says that in the latter day, the nations will flow a, a, as a river upstream. Up. There's going to be some sort of supernatural magnetism that draws the nations to this hill. And church, we know what that supernatural magnetism is. It is Jesus, the Christ, the Lord exalted, the, the, the suffering servant who's come back as the conquering king, the Lord himself, the rescuer and savior of sinners, and all the nations shall flow to him. That's one of the most beautiful and the most, one of the most compelling pictures that we have of heaven in the scriptures, that, that all the nations will be drawn to him. That, that it will contain people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and every people. There will be people there from Indonesia. There will be people there from Papua New Guinea, from among the Malayali. There will be people there from China. There will be people there from Japan and Taiwan and the Philippines. There will be people there from Russia and Ukraine and Germany and England. There will be people there from Ghana and Zambia and South Africa. There will be people there from Peru and Brazil and Canada and, yes, even the United States. May, may God be pleased that there will be many from Buford, Georgia as well. There will be people there from all over the world being drawn as if, as if caught up in a river current going uphill to the mountain of our King, to the house of God, to meet with God's people and to celebrate the King together. What a picture we have of this new Jerusalem. And then thirdly, we note here that, that when the nations go up to the house of Jacob, in the latter days, it will be because God is going to teach them. God is going to teach them from his law. And the people will want to learn. And they will want to grow. And they will walk away committed to obey it. And they will. That will be tremendously different than today. Isaiah writes in verse 3. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now, that's a Sunday school that you're not got his word, church. And then we're going to go and live it out obediently. We're going to do what he teaches. We're going to do what he says. Can you imagine a world where that is the case? where everyone on the face of the earth recognizes that Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord Almighty. Everyone sees that. And everyone from all nations is drawn to Him, not only for worship, but to learn from Him. They want to hear Him teach. 
And, and they want to learn that, and they walk away, and they go and live it out. They obey it. They listen to the Lord teach them. They embrace those teachings, and they go and they live it out. Oh, how different that city will be than the city of our day. And then finally and consequently, as a result of this, this city will be marked by perfect justice and perfect peace. At the beginning of verse 4, he says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Now, I don't think that Isaiah envisions that there's going to be many disputes there in heaven, but the point here is that there will be perfect justice there because the Lord God Almighty himself will judge, be a judge for the nations. And every time in this world, in our day, in our city, when we see injustices around us, it ought to make us long for this city that's coming, where there's four and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The implements of war will no longer be needed, so much so that the implements of war will be, will be transformed into farming implements. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And there will be no need to even learn how to war anymore. There will be peace among the nations. Sadly, in our day, there is need for the implements of war. And we read on our news feeds each and every day, even today, that those implements of war are being deployed in parts of the world every single day. And with every drone strike and every missile launched and every shot fired should make God's people long for this city that is coming where there will be perfect peace. What a glorious description of that new city. I hope that you look forward, brother and sister, to living in that city as much as I do. That's our home. That's our home, not this. That's where we are meant to live the rest of eternity. And our citizenship in that city was purchased at a high, high cost. Spills who don't deserve to live in a city like this are not only granted admission by grace through faith, but we're given a mansion there. Glory be to God. And Isaiah, too, seems to be caught up in this vision because then he, he, he stops in verse 5. And it's like he, 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 he turns his gaze away from the vision of the new Jerusalem. He turns to the people and he says, Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, since that is what awaits us, since that's what we're going to spend the rest of eternity doing, house of Jacob, let's live like that now. Let, let's, let's start now living like this. Church, we won't be able to do this perfectly because we live in a fallen world and we've got a sinful flesh that's very active still inside of us. But we who live on this side of the crucifixion, we who live on this side of the resurrection, certainly 
can do this much more easily than the people of Isaiah's day. And I think that's perhaps part of what the Lord would have us to understand from verse 5 as he leads Isaiah, his servant, to say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I don't know that Isaiah truly understood the ramifications and the implications of what he was writing when he said, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because church, you and I know that Jesus is the light. And our him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are a Christian, if you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment we all deserve because of our rebellion against the King, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as a believer in Jesus, then you have this light in you through the abiding presence of Jesus, through his Holy Spirit that indwells you. So walk in the light of the Lord. John writes in his first epistle, in 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so in view of that vision of that new city that is coming, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of the heavens one day and will be our eternal home, the eternal home of all those who have prepared ourselves for living in that glorious future by seeking to walk in the light today and begin to live that way today. And so consider these thoughts for yourself in the next few moments in light of the fact that the new Jerusalem will, in fact, be the highest mountain ever and everyone will see that to this Lamb belongs all glory, honor, praise, and authority Do you recognize in Jesus that he is the highest authority in your life and the most important person in your life? Or is there another authority to whom you give greater allegiance? Is there another person or perhaps yourself that you think more highly of and is on a scale more important than him? Does your life reflect that Jesus is the highest authority in your life? In light of the fact that the nations will be drawn to the house of Jacob, do you seek to draw the nations to Jesus today? By holding out the gospel to your friends, neighbors, and co-workers, regardless of race, nationality, or language? And do you seek to labor alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body of Christ, to hold out the gospel to those on the other side of the globe? In light of the fact that we'll 
They will want to, to go uphill to listen to God teach to them from His Word and have a deep desire to live that out so that they might walk in His ways. In light of the fact that that's what we'll do for all of eternity, how does this match up with your commitment today in this city to gather with God's people and listen to Him teach? Or are you listening to Him out of a desire just to understand better what the Word of God says and what it means so that you'll be smarter about it? Or do you truly want to be changed by it? Do you truly want to see your life ordered by the Scriptures and your life aligned with what we see in the Word of God for the glory of God? And in light of the fact that this new Jerusalem, our forever home, will be marked by perfect justice and perfect peace. Do you look for opportunities to bring about justice and peace today? It won't be perfect the side of heaven because we live in a fallen world. But the lack of justice and the lack of peace in our world should remind us that this world is not our home. It should make us long for the city to come. But until then, until we get home, May we walk in the light of the Lord. That's how Isaiah exhorts the people of his day. He concludes this vision of the, of the new Jerusalem that's coming. says, that's the ideal. That, that's what Jerusalem could be and would have been were it not for sin. That's the Jerusalem that will be one day, but it's not the Jerusalem of today. And so he, he shifts gears then to the second vision in chapter 2, which is the vision of Judah's prideful arrogance. We read verses 6 through 9, and, and verses 6 through 9 gives us a picture of, of the house of Jacob seeking contentment, seeking satisfaction and delight, seeking meaning and purpose and security in pretty much anything other than God. He mentions three things in particular that, that Judah is filled with. He, he uses that word thematically here. He repeats that word over and over on purpose. They're, they're filled with these things, not with God. They're filled with these things. What? First, they're filled with godless superstitions. Verse 6 says that they are full of the things from the east. In other words, they have welcomed in the superstitions, uh, the superstitious customs and rituals of the, of the pagan peoples from the east, like the fortune tellers from the Philistines, as he says. And why did they do that? Well, because they thought they would help them. They thought, they thought they'd get some kind of benefit out of that. And so they turned away from their God, and they turned to superstitions. Today, perhaps we could... Jehovah is some heavenly vending machine that we just put in our quarter and out pops a blessing for us that has no basis in the scriptures. That's not the God of the Bible. It's just a superstition. And they're filled with this. They've so abandoned God and they've run after these superstitions. Secondly, they're filled with godless wealth. Verse 7 their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. 
Sounds like America, doesn't it? Now, this is not a knock against wealth, but rather a condemnation of the mindset and the perspective that finds hope and contentment and security in money and things and materialism rather than in God himself. And they're filled with this. They're overflowing with these things and they've abandoned hope in God in favor of hope in these things. And thirdly, Judah was filled with godless idols. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. The word idol literally means non-God. It's, it's a play on words here in Isaiah. The word for idol is Ilalim, and the word for God is Elohim. Isaiah says, you are, you are the people of Elohim. You are Elohim's chosen people. And yet you are filled with the Ilalim. You're filled with the in Elohim. Hold up as high and important the Ilalim, the non-gods. Now this is an important theme that's going to be repeated all throughout the book of Isaiah. It's, it's, it's introduced here, the theme of idolatry. As really... Uh, fundamental and, and primary in Judah's sin and certainly emblematic of Judah's abandonment of Yahweh. So great has their abandonment of Yahweh been that they've resorted to worshiping, paying homage to things that they make with their own hands. And so verse 9 is the resulting consequence of their abandonment of God. So man is humbled and each one is brought low, do not forgive them. This is not Isaiah commanding God to not forgive them. In many times, in, in many places, the Old Testament Hebrew imperative verb form comes out as an irrevocable consequence, an unavoidable result. In other words, Judah, you have so abandoned God, surely he will not forgive you. Surely God's people have gone too far. And verse 9 also sets us up for the remainder of chapter 2 with this prophecy here of mankind being humbled and brought low as a result of their prideful arrogance. And that prophecy in verse 9 really tees us up for verses 10 through 21. It is um, a poem in and of itself. And there are themes that are repeated and there are figures of speech that are used that we'll, that we'll see here. But I think we should read this as a poem, as it is. Because that's really the structure of it. So I want us to see this, but I want to I give you the meaning of it in advance so that you can see it flesh out as we read it. So, so here's, here's a summary statement of the meaning of this poem. That in the day of the Lord, and we're going to talk about what that is. That in the day of the Lord, this coming judgment, all that man has lifted up, all that man has exalted, all that man has put their hope in will be brought low, and the Lord alone will be lifted up. So that's the meaning of this poem. So let's listen now as Isaiah gives us this poem in verses 10 through 21. 
Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of all every form, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes in the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Again, the meaning of this poem is that in the day of the Lord, in that coming judgment, all that man has lifted up will be brought low and the Lord himself will be exalted. So let's consider those three elements of this poem. First, there is a coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is written about in both the Old and the New Testament. It is a coming judgment from God where all mankind will have to give an answer for their sin. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us has transgressed God's laws and standards in thought, word, and deed. Each of us are rebels. We've all gone our own way. And one day, we will have to stand before our Maker, our holy God, and give an answer for our transgressions. And on that day, the day of the Lord, no man will stand. No person will will stand on that day because we are all guilty before God. And so God in His infinite wisdom and in His sovereign grace, He made a way for sinners to be reconciled. He made a way for sinners like us to be justified to stand before a holy God on the day. It was His death and resurrection. Those who placed their faith in Jesus Christ Those who turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone will be forgiven. And and for them on that day, Jesus will stand up and say, those are ours, Father. Those over there, they're, they're ours. They belong to us. Don't you see the robe, my robe of righteousness that's on them? Their sins have already been paid for. I I, I spilled my blood at Calvary for those. They're ours. They can come in. And those robed in a righteousness not our own 
with wool, white as snow, though it had been stained crimson red with our own sin, will be spared from the judgment. And the day of the Lord will pass over like the angel of death passed over the Israelites on whose threshold was the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Oh, how we will praise God on that day for the precious blood of the lamb spilled for us. But for those who have not repented and trusted in Christ alone, maybe that's you, friend. Maybe that's you. Those will have remain on them. And there will be no robe of righteousness to cover it up. And the day of the Lord will not pass over them. But it will be, as Isaiah puts it here, a terror. The terror of the Lord. And so I say to you, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, your only hope is Jesus. Come to faith in Christ. As Isaiah says, turn from your wickedness. Turn from your sin. Turn from your desire to to rule your own life and turn to Christ and His rule over your life. Put your faith in His finished work on the cross as your only hope because it is your only hope. But oh, what a good and sufficient hope it is. The second part of this summary statement is that this poem teaches us That on the day of the Lord, all that man has lifted up will be brought low. All that man has lifted up will be brought low. Isaiah, he he looks out first and he sees the vision of of the new Jerusalem. And it's going to be the highest of all high mountains. And everyone's going to see that all authority and glory and honor and praise belong to the ones on that throne. And then he looks at the people of Judah's day. And he laments that the people of his day have put pretty much everything else in life above God and before God. The cedars of Lebanon, the the oaks of Bashan, would practice their religion where they worship the non-gods. The high towers, he says all the high towers, all the fortified walls, a reference to the, the ingenuity of human engineering and technology. All of that will be brought low. The ships of Tarshish, a reference to the importance that they had on on transportation and and commerce and, and economic wealth. The beautiful craft, a reference to human creativity in the arts. And the idols, even the idols made of silver and gold, they'll all be brought low. They'll all be humbled. And the only thing, church, the only thing that will be lifted up is the Lord God Himself. And that is the third part of this summary of the poem, that the Lord alone will be lifted up. And so Isaiah concludes this second vision here in chapter 2, this vision of the prideful arrogance of man with an exhortation, a closing exhortation in verse 22. He says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? 
In other words, you're working so hard to exalt yourselves. You're working so hard to lift up man and to lift up the works of man. And all of that's going to be shown for what it is one day. Absolutely nothing. Everything in the day of the Lord. So he says, stop regarding man. Stop considering man as, as supreme, as most important, whether it's yourself or other people in your life that you're trying to please. Stop regarding man. Of what account is he? He says, we have breath in our nostrils. What does that mean? That seems strange. No one's ever said to me, hey, you've got breath in your nostrils. What does that mean? It's a reference to Genesis 2. If you recall in Genesis 2, the God who made us, the God who formed us, then did what? He breathed life into our nostrils. He put his breath, the breath of life, into our nostrils. We are so dependent on him. So Isaiah is saying, stop, stop putting man, stop putting people, stop putting the stuff that we do on a pedestal. We're nothing. We're of no account. If God never breathed life into us, we'd be, we wouldn't be here. We'd be nothing. We owe our very existence to our maker. And we think that we're all that in a bag of chips. No, we are of no account. But the one who made us, the one who breathed life into our nostrils, he is everything. The second part of chapter 2 in this vision of the prideful arrogance of man is a helpful to reminder to us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is so key to the Christian life. In repentance and in defiance before God. And reject the fact that he is a sinner. But the humbled sinner. Humbled by the Holy Spirit to see and acknowledge that there is sin there. There is vile, crimson red stain of sin. The one who is humbled by the Holy Spirit to see their sin, they will cry out, for mercy on such a sinner. But humility is not just a key for entering the Christian life, it's, it's key for living the Christian life. And so, church, and so church, having been reminded this morning that the perfect justice of God will one day on the day of the Lord be meted out and it will have the effect of bringing low all that we have made high, all that we have lifted up other than him, that the haughtiness of man will be humbled, that the lofty pride of man will be brought low. <clears throat> and having been reminded also that in the latter days, the new Jerusalem will be the highest of all high mountains, and that the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Having been reminded of these things, I wonder where is pride lingering in your heart? Where is pride lingering in your life? I hope and I pray that the God pride and ability before Him. In fact, I would challenge you to pray along with me in just a moment a very dangerous prayer, and that is, God, will you humble me? It's a dangerous prayer to pray because when we ask God to humble us, sometimes He does. 
Sometimes he will humble us by taking away from us the things that we've taken pride in, our successes, our accomplishments. And sometimes he'll give us humility by leading us into situations where our trust in ourselves and our trust in others and our trust in anything other than him is exposed for the vanity that it is. And all that we have left to cling to is him. And we see that that's enough. So it's a dangerous prayer to pray that God would humble us. But Isaiah seems to say here, be humbled now or be humbled later. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be humbled now. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this vision of our home. It's so easy for us to be captured by the world around us and not see past the veneer to the stain of sin that infects everything in this world. Father, we are, I can't wait. I can't wait, Lord, to get there. I can't wait to get home, to be in this place that is high and lifted up with you, with the nations, with my brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering before you to worship you, to hear you teach to us, and then we go and obey it. To be in a place of perfect justice and peace. Father, help us not to be so in love with this world that we fail to long for our home. That we fail to long for the new city that's coming. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, set it up. Father, we are sorry for our pride. We are sorry for seeking contentment and satisfaction and delight and meaning and purpose and security and hope in things other than you, in superstitions in money and materialism and things and the many idols that we put before you. God, we ask that you would break our pride in these things and others. We ask that you would give us humility. God, that you would give us the kind of humility that we saw in your son, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be asserted, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, you have highly exalted your Son and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus one day every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, is Lord to your glory, Father. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in such a way that 
We are made less of, and he is made much away. Your son is lifted up, that he is magnified and exalted in and through our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.